Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. Rishi Sunak's commitment to net zero has come under scrutiny in recent weeks after the government appeared to row back on plans to phase out petrol and diesel cars by 2030. And Sunak also urged oil producers to max out on production licences in the North Sea. Whatever that may mean. The Prime Minister says the government's still committed to the UK's climate pledge to get to net zero by 2050. He just wants to go about it in a proportionate and pragmatic way that doesn't unnecessarily give people more hassle and more cost in their lives. Well, who would agree with that? <laughs> more cost, yes. But, but, but is that even possible? Net zero requires a host of things to come together in a happy way, from an energy system, probably electrification, that can deliver the energy everyone needs in a cost-effective way. Consumers and companies need to change the way they do things, from replacing fossil fuel heating in homes and internal combustion engine vehicles to getting rid of carbon in factories and offices. Furthest advanced of these is probably electric vehicles, but most of the rest feels totally up in the air to me, with little more than targets to guide us. Now, the Energy Systems Catapult is an innovation agency part funded by the private sector and part by the public sector, that exists, among other things, to think about net zero. Last week, its chairman, Nick Windsor, penned a document about electrification, which observed how much remains to be done. So we asked Richard Halsey, who's the innovation director at the Catapult, to join us to discuss the practicalities of net zero and where the UK has got to. So, Richard, welcome. Thanks, Jonathan. Nice to be here. I suppose the, the first question really to ask is just to sort of set the scenes about what you see as the real costs and implications of getting to net zero within the sort of time frame that Theresa May's government set in 2019. There's no getting away from it that delivering net zero is a, a real challenge. But I, I would see it as a, a kind of critical mission that is essential for two two main reasons. So to meet the challenge of climate change, but also to ensure that we create a better place for the future. The reality of getting to net zero is that it, it is going to require significant investment. One of the latest estimates was in the order of 1.3 trillion to be able to deliver net zero. But of that, over 900 billion is expected to be benefits. So the net costs out to 2050 are expected to be closer to, to 300 billion. And that doesn't account for all the wider benefits that are going to be associated with delivering net zero. So the health benefits that are going to come from uh, air quality, from dietary and health service improvements, and it represents a significant investment opportunity as much as a cost. Hmm. Well, I'm afraid I've heard this many times before on many large public sector projects. And it's curious how the benefits are so much more difficult to find and the costs are always always hugely underestimated and I can see no reason why it should be any different now and I think that the, the thing that we have to do above all is to try and persuade the politicians to tell the truth of the real cost. I, I think there's a 
there's a reality of the cost of getting to net zero, which is really important. But I don't think it can be underestimated the benefits that will accrue over time to society, to households, and that we have to be very clear on, I, I would argue, the investments that we need to take for a more sustainable future and the potential benefits and, and, and in fairness like when those benefits will arise and we need to be very clear on how we're going to make those investments. Just on this sort of valuation of the benefits one of the things that people do think about quite a lot is the question of what will happen to energy costs and energy availability as a result of net zero I mean, I think in the past you have come up with a cost or the catapult came up with a cost of something like well, I think one to two percent of GDP mm-hmm. as being the increment to achieve net zero. That's essentially a, a permanent addition to energy costs in the country and will flow into everything that happens in the UK. That is quite a substantial increase when you think that energy costs have represented something between I don't know, three and five percent of GDP over time. Yeah, I mean, as I said, there's there's no getting away from the hard realities of the cost of of meeting net zero. And as you said, Jonathan, we, we've sort of estimated and others such as the CCC government itself has estimated those costs could be between one and two percent. I think the central scenario was was around one point three percent. But as we've seen uh, kind of relatively recently, the cost of energy is influenced by many global factors. We in, in, in the UK can be exposed to those factors and they can significantly influence the costs that we pay for energy and that households are paid for energy. So there's a real need and, and an opportunity, I think I would argue, to be preemptive in developing infrastructure, energy systems that are resilient and ensure that the long-term costs that households and consumers are going to pay are, are as fair and affordable as possible. Where is this energy going to come from? We've already seen over the last decade the significant change in our energy mix, the growth of renewables, more wind, more solar. We're seeing, obviously, a continued role for interconnectors. There's potentially important and enduring role for nuclear power. A real mix of uh, energy generation technologies are going to be needed to deliver net zero and ensure that we can have a secure and reliable system for for businesses and people. The two principal sources are essentially windmills and nuclear power. Uh, We've demonstrated how good we are at building nuclear power stations and as we speak uh, we are getting further and further away from the target for building even one nuclear power station. There is the uh, prospect, I don't think it's any more than that, of these mini nukes, which may or may not turn out to be competitive. But as for wind power, I have to say that I think that we have done this with disguised subsidies all the way, and I don't think they're getting cheaper. I think, if anything, they're getting more expensive. Is there a question coming? <laughs> well, the question is the same one. You know, you say it's all, it's all going to come from, from really nuclear come power from- and, and wind turbines. I just don't see it. I mean, I think if you look at global costs of wind, uh, you know, renewable energy generally in a global context, then it's quite clear that the costs of producing energy from renewable sources, particularly wind and solar, has dramatically reduced over the last 20 years. And the reality is it makes a, a much more significant part of the of the UK's electricity supply mix now. And there's no reason to think that that can't and shouldn't increase if we want to ensure that we have 
a renewable and secure supply, the electricity infrastructure that's needed to ensure that we can effectively utilise the wind generation potential that we have in the country is possibly one of the more pressing issues that we need to try and address and ensure that we have the right infrastructure in the right place at the right time if we're going to be able to deliver net zero. Yeah. On the cost of wind turbines, I think when you talk about the declining cost, you're really talking about the capex costs of building wind farms. Clearly, that's not necessarily the whole picture because there are associated costs. And one of the associated costs, which is hardest to get at as an outsider, as a member of the public, is the cost of backup and how you continue to generate power at times that the wind isn't blowing. The only assumption I'm making is that we would, in the absence of some other miracle technology, we would need storage to do that. If you look at where the UK is at the moment, we have 33 gigawatts of storage in the UK, which is equivalent to roughly 45 minutes of usage on an average day. Calculations that have been done based on the sort of wind arrays that we might have in 2050, which are over 150 gigawatts, for example, assuming that level of wind output, if there was a lull of, say, five days, which seems to be the sort of thing that the number that people tend to go by, estimated that would, is that it would require 8,000 gigawatt hours of storage to fill that lull which is roughly equivalent to the entire storage capacity in the world today. It's just no way we're ever going to... We're ever, no. We just don't have the natural facilities to do it, we don't have the money to do it, and we don't have the time to do it, surely. Yeah. Storage is going to be a really, really important part of the energy system going forward if we're going to continue to see growth in renewables, even just at the rate that we have done, let alone the extent and pace and scale that we need to get to net zero. But I think it's not just storage in isolation. We also need to combine storage with flexibility of the assets that we're going to see on the road, electric vehicles you talked about, but also in people's homes, how we might better use digital technology to be able to control and manage the energy we use rather than just meeting the energy demand that we have today. The work that we've done quite often looks at what are the uh, potential benefits we can achieve in reducing energy demand, in reducing energy consumption from electrification, from energy efficiency, from more effective demand management. And those things in combination are what's going to get us to a positive, affordable net zero. If we just kind of try and meet today's world with energy solutions, that's the, the, the sort of path of probably most regret And if we can try and create a smarter, more effective energy system, that's going to deliver value for people and businesses. I suppose electricity, in a way, is the bit that we've achieved most in the the time we've had up till now. I think we're more than halfway to the 2030 target in terms of low carbon electricity, although... You know, Neil would probably quibble a bit. That's it's fine all, when the wind all, blows. It's all a bit stick and string and could fail. But in other areas, we're actually way off the target. Electric vehicles, often seen as a success story, where we are today is we've got about 24% of new cars are electric vehicles against a 2030 target of almost 100%. As a share of the UK fleet, electric vehicles are 2.5% as opposed to the 2030 target of 43%. Green hydrogen, which is the thing that people often talk about, 
and thousands of tonnes per year we produce roughly zero as against the 2030 target of 700,000 tonnes and CO2 removed, which is the other kind of hoped for technological breakthrough. So carbon capture and storage. We have a target of 22 million tonnes of carbon to be captured by per annum by 2030. And we've got no- nowhere on that either. So aren't we really kind of running way behind what we have to achieve? Or fooling ourselves, as I would put it. <laughs> I mean, I think the areas that you call, I mean, the Committee on Climate Change's latest sort of progress report, I think, called this out quite starkly in these particular areas. We have made as a as a, as a country good progress on the decarbonisation of, of the power system as it stands today. Mm. But those areas that are arguably more directly connected to consumers and people's choices and behaviours, mm. they are areas where we are clearly behind where we need to be and we need to see more progress you you know called out carbon capture that's another important area where the pace of progress that we've wanted to see has not been there and it's a really important area the same with with hydrogen we have ambitions and and see hydrogen forming a quite important part of of global economies not just just the UK in the future and it is one where we have to see some material progress in demonstrating at an industrial scale the potential to deliver technologies and integrate them as part of the energy system. That's something that's quite often kind of forgotten. Things are quite often thought about as as individual technology building blocks. But part of this transition is going to be ensuring that a range of different technologies come together and work together effectively. But there are huge structural problems. I can't see why anyone would invest in carbon capture and storage mechanisms. A year or so ago, I spoke to some people who are developing them. They kind of said, and I quote, I'm paraphrasing here, we're wasting our time. No one's going to invest in this. Anyone who has a factory where they would need to capture lots of carbon will simply move that factory to somewhere where they don't have to do it because they're going to become hopelessly uncompetitive in a world where we force our manufacturers to install this stuff and nobody else does. And their argument, the manufacturer's argument, was the only possible way this can work is if the government is prepared to move to a carbon border tax adjustment, a kind of carbon tariff protecting an area of the world where we're we're undergoing this. But there's no sign that anything like that will ever happen. So manufacturers have zero incentive and therefore nothing happens. It's not without its challenges, particularly in in that area. And I don't. I think the government has a critical role to play in in those technology areas to be able to create the the mechanisms and support that's needed for businesses to be able to develop, demonstrate, and invest in those technologies. There's an opportunity for the UK in the global context of things like carbon capture as well, if it's able to work with businesses collaboratively. I think this is about government coming together and supporting businesses to be able to demonstrate and prove technologies at scale and then be able to look at the potential value that that can create globally, not just in the context of the UK. It's all, it all sounds very fine, but I don't think there's a single carbon capture and storage commercial scale plant that actually works in a way which makes any sense. And as for hydrogen, I think if ever there was a dead end, it's that. You create it by breaking up the water molecule and then you use it by recreating it again. So the total energy 
needed for that cycle is bound to be a good deal more than the useful energy you get out of it. I mean, that's just thermodynamics. I just wanted to come to, to another aspect of this, which is slightly different in it's a consumer-facing product, the heat pump. Now, heat pumps have been talked about for a long time as the absolutely vital piece of decarbonizing, you know, domestic heating. And yet it has proved incredibly hard to persuade almost anyone to take them up. It's not clear what the mechanism the government intends to use other than long range targets saying we're not going to build any more homes after this point to actually bring this about. I think a select committee that has commons observed recently that if at the current rate of take up, it would take until virtually the end of the world to, <laughs> <laughs> to have Quite. heat pumps. But I find myself thinking, here you have a situation where we are saying to the public, this is a technology you need. In a world of consumer choice, they may want to take it up if they think it's advantageous, but they may not if they think it's expensive and doesn't work so well. How do you actually get people to do it? What's the what's the mechanism? Is it a carrot stick? Both? You know, you sort of hit the nail on the head there. I think it is a combination of both carrot and stick. You, you talk about deployment rates, but the volume of heat pumps being installed in the UK has increased dramatically from where it was 10 years ago, let's say. I, I think the government's position on this is to try and is similar to, to what's been done with electric vehicles through the clean heat market mechanism is to put a kind of incentive and push on manufacturers of boilers to, as part of their portfolio, also install so many heat pumps. In a similar way has happened with OEMs and manufacturers of internal combustion engine vehicles. So you create a sort of ratcheting mechanism whereby the people producing the, the, the kind of product have to gradually increase the volume of kind of lower carbon product. Now, I would argue that is you know, one part of the uh, of the puzzle. I think the other part of the puzzle is figuring out how low carbon heating, which does offer a number of benefits, can be sort of positioned so and businesses can, in effect, figure out how low carbon heating can solve problems for people in homes. There's the potential for low carbon heating to be more effective, more responsive, more desirable in many ways than the current sort of uh, heating systems that we have in homes. We quite often have lots of problems in our houses with heating uh, damp, the ability to get warm quickly, the ability to control our heating. So there's the, the opportunity to combine kind of government kind of intervention with more effective customer propositions and solutions. It's a it's a very pretty picture, but I'm afraid I don't really don't buy it. The heat pump keeps you hot in the summer and cool in the winter, because of course when you want it most is when it's most uh, difficult to extract the heat from the uh, from the cold air or the ground. Even if you understand that, the capital costs are beyond most people. The idea that the government's got a for yet another subsidy to persuade people to do it is, I think, a sort of council of despair. And I think the same thing goes for a lot of the other things as well. They might make tiny incremental improvements for a small number of people, small number of firms, but I don't see that uh, that is anything remotely in the area of a proper solution. I would draw sort of comparisons with, uh, you know, the history of central heating in homes, the history of power showers or showers in homes where we saw quite significant uptake and accelerated uptake 
due to the benefits that were being offered to households. And I, I think it's similar with kind of heat pumps and integrated electric heating solutions, potentially, that we need to see holistic solutions that work for people. I did think a bit about this, and there seem to be two modern British models of achieving some big change from a central perspective. One was the analogue television switch-off, which was broadly brought about by better televisions and people seeing the the virtue. And the other was the natural gas changeover in the 60s and 70s. And that was done basically by the state taking all choice away from people and saying, we're coming to your street on the 15th of September and basically we're just going to change your stuff. And if you don't want it, then you're out of the gas business and you can find another way of heating your home. Is there anything in those that can provide any inspiration for this particular problem? I mean, I, I think they, they, are, uh, they were obviously of a, of a time, perhaps, and I would argue things like digitalization, the advent of social media and, and other things maybe create slightly different context around those sort of big switch and big change. However, I, I do think that there is the need and, and value in the uh, creation of, of longer term plans for places how can you give places communities people confidence in what the direction of travel is so that they can start to prepare and get ready and then equally network companies uh, businesses providing solutions can look to invest and develop solutions in particular places so if we had in the places we live plans about whether we're going to live in an electrification neighborhood if we're going to live in a district heating neighborhood if we're going to live in a deep retrofit zone that might create a degree of confidence and allow you to work walk down a similar path where ultimately maybe you have some hard sort of switchover type points uh, but it allows people to kind of get on board and get engaged with the change that's going to need to happen just one point from me which is is once again puzzlement over the disjointed nature of all of this we started off by saying that although neil doesn't much like it nuclear is supposedly going to have to play a part in the decarbonization of energy Yet only a week ago, we have the Energy Secretary talking about small nuclear plants, which are clearly a part of the government's strategy, and just saying vaguely that they're going to come along at some point in the 2030s. There's just this sort of uh, constant adherence to the idea that sort of expressing some airy distant target will lead to something happening in the, the years, the intervening years, when... As we know, that just doesn't happen in the real world. And, and I think that's a really important point. And I, we would certainly say from the Energy <laughs> Systems Catapult perspective that getting on with demonstrating, proving technologies at scale that we feel are going to be an important potential part of the mix you know, in several decades' time is really important. And, and not just talking about things, but, but getting on and developing and showcasing things. And I, I think the government has a really important part to play in enabling and supporting that to happen. And it's one of those areas, the same with CCUS, there's a really, same with long duration energy storage, a real need to get behind those technologies that we think are going to be really important. So I would certainly be an advocate of the government kind of getting behind and doing more earlier on those kind of things. Yeah, more subsidies all round. <laughs> Neil's, Neil, Neil's point right at the beginning was that we needed to be honest with ourselves about what was achievable and how much it would take to do it. Do you think the government has been honest, really, about the 
challenges we face in getting to net zero? I personally think the government is aware of the extent of change and transformation that's needed to get zero. And, you know, the various work that's been done has an understanding of the costs or the investment need. It also is is very clear on the challenge of meeting interim carbon budgets, which I potentially see just as uh, just as challenging. Has it got behind and really supported what needs to be supported to be able to to move forward at the pace and scale that's needed, I think is probably the kind of key question. There are some areas which seem really, really important and it's providing some support, but is it of the scale? Uh, Is it collaborating with businesses and industry? Is it setting the direction of travel? Is it providing the connection into local government and places to help people really understand what net zero means practically for them? The public, I think, take the view that net zero doesn't mean very much for them. The world will continue broadly as it is now. That's what they've been told to expect. They'll still be able to switch on their electricity whenever they feel like it, go wherever they want to, fly it on their holidays and so on and so forth. Are they living in a fool's paradise? Again, I might be an optimist. Um, but <laughs> You the, better be. <laughs> I would like to think that a net zero future will have a better outcomes for households. And so I think that's the net zero world that we should be striving for not one that just kind of propagates today's situation but actually creates life better for people well richard you've been very game to come on and uh, discuss all these issues we've been, <laughs> we've been hurling the most uh, unpleasant googlies in your general direction and you've yeah, added to... up and uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> dispatched a few to the boundary as they say ashes yeah a couple of played and missed but we'll let that make you off that That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.